Scaling a two-sided marketplace is a business problem faced by some of the biggest companies today. Uber, Airbnb, Etsy, TaskRabbit. A central idea to each of these businesses is that of the human in the loop. With a complex marketplace, you cannot automate everything. The tasks which cannot be automated are given to humans who are empowered with computers. This model of human-computer symbiosis is central to the business of Hired.com, a job marketplace where knowledge workers are paired with employers. Full disclosure, Hired is a sponsor of Software Engineering Daily. But even before Hired was a sponsor, I used the service to find a job, and I have been interested in the company ever since. In this episode, we discuss the internal engineering challenges of Hired with Hitten Parmar, an engineer and product strategist. If you are a fan of Software Engineering Daily, we would love to know how to improve. Please take five minutes to fill out our listener survey. There is a link to the survey in our newsletter and on our website. We would love to know what you think and what you want to hear more of and what you want to hear less of. We read all of the feedback that we get, so please fill out our survey and help us build the best software podcast for you. Heaton Parmar works on product strategy and engineering at Hired.com. Heaton, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Hi, great to be here. What is Hired.com? Well, Hired's a, Hired's a website. We call it a jobs marketplace. It's basically a great place for you to get. Um, and if, you know, if you're an engineer or a salesperson or a marketer, get in front of some people who want to hire you. And before Hired, what were the ways that software engineers could find jobs? Well, I think the most popular ones are, you know, you get through your friends, your network, people you've worked with before. And then, you know, now we have more websites out there. So things like LinkedIn, applying to job boards, all that stuff. Um, But with Hired, we kind of flip the model. So instead of you applying to companies, companies basically apply to you. And this marketplace works well because the demand for engineers vastly outstrips the supply can you share any statistics to describe how badly engineers are needed? Oh, I mean, I don't, I don't have too many good ones off the top of my head, but I think there's some data about just the Bay Area talking about the big companies, the big three, I guess, or the big four, uh, you know, have between them something like ten to 20,000 open job recs. Um, even Larry, I think, over at Google has said, yeah, if he could hire 100,000 more people, he would. He just can't find them. Uh, so with the amount of work that needs to get done, it's pretty tremendous right now. It's a great time to be a software engineer. And across the tech industry, what are the ways in which the hiring process is broken? Oof. Well, there's a bunch of ways. I mean, the sites we use and the way we approach hiring is sort of a little off. I mean, take a site uh, where you can put your profile up, maybe like LinkedIn. Yeah, you know, there's a lot of people there, but you don't really know who actually wants to get a job. So with Hired, you know that everyone actually is looking for a job at that right moment. So it's, we call that like the intent problem. Why did the hiring process evolve this way? Hmm. Well, I think LinkedIn came in where there was just a big sort of um, big push for social. So to put people's profiles out there and make the connections and, you know, see what we can do from there. But LinkedIn's really in a different business. We're really focused on getting straight to getting people jobs. And maybe the incentives are a little misaligned there because LinkedIn 
makes most of their money off of recruiters, right? Yeah, definitely. And it's more about selling their you know, right to message or messaging in general. We're actually success-based. So we get paid when someone gets a job. So if you don't get a job, we're not going to get paid at all. What are the engineering skills that are in highest demand right now? Right now, I think there's two really hot areas. One is mobile. So both iOS and Android development, you can see that it's just exploded worldwide. Every single company wants to have an app, whether you're GE or, you know, your Facebook. And then another, another space is in data, dealing with a lot of data, data science, coming up with insights. I think we're really good at storing and keeping data right now. And now it's time to actually start to leverage that. Right. So we've done several shows on this, like data science, data engineering, data analysis. These are all different verticals within what used to be just called data science. And with software engineering across the board, we're seeing an increase in the variety of jobs. You know, what used to be maybe called a sysadmin has gotten broken down into subcategories like DevOps. So there are these newer job types how does Hired look at these different job categories? Well, we noticed that same thing. And I think right now we're actually ourselves trying to answer this question and sort of figure out, you know, as we add more verticals and more jobs, like our goal is really find everyone on the planet a job they love. So right now we're definitely heavy in the engineering and sort of tech space. Um, it's a tough question. I think we, we try to... We just try to give as much flexibility to you know the people involved. So it's not just a pure algorithm. We definitely have people. So every candidate gets a talent advocate, someone to vouch for them and talk to them and understand exactly what they're looking for. And then obviously our clients are also dealing with an uh, you know sort of an account management or sales position in our company. So it's it's a lot of technology. We try to do a lot of smart things, but it's still very much a people business when it comes to finding the job that's going to make you happy and where you're going to spend, you know, most of your awake days or awake time. Yeah. So this is really interesting because the way that we might, you know, there's this ongoing debate of the human computer interaction stuff. And when you think about trying to label the different categories and subcategories of jobs, if you wanted to have a really good algorithmic process for matching people with jobs, you would have to have a well-defined, well, I mean, in many, it would much make it much easier if you had a well-schematized definition for how jobs are categorized and how workers are categorized, because then you can more easily match up workers with jobs. But because there's this schema that's evolving day-to-day across the industry, that's not really possible, because if a new job subcategory crops up tomorrow then your schema is instantly out of date. So the one way to solve this is kind of this human-computer interaction that you kind of touched on. You know, you, you get a human in the loop. Um, and so I'd, I'd really like to, to get into this discussion because I think the human-in-the-loop computing is, is, is very interesting. It's a, kind of a topic that's only going to increase in, in importance uh, as software engineering goes on. So in order to engage in this conversation, I want to like outline the process of Hired a little bit more. So if I'm a person looking for a job, I put my information into Hired and then just like, you know, just like on LinkedIn or whatever, I put my profile up basically. Then what happens next? How is my information processed? Well, your first step is you apply to our platform. Um, and so of everyone that applies, we let in about 5 to 7%. 
And that goes through a process that's both, it's both an algorithm, both the machine and a sort of human curation process. So the first step is getting in. And what we're looking for there is relevant skills that match the demand of our, the locations we're in. We're not everywhere. And then specifically the clients that we have. So in order to make the marketplace work, we want to have supply and demand match each other. And so we try to make sure of that. And then also, you know, make sure people are going to be successful that are on the platform. So that's the first step. It's just getting on. And then I think I mentioned this before about talent advocate, this role that we've sort of created. Each participating candidate will get a talent advocate. And basically they act as a personal career coach throughout the whole process. And so you can leverage them a lot. Some people do, some people don't. Maybe only at the end of the process when you're trying to think about things like way different offer, offers against each other. You know, things are complicated now. There's stock options and all different ways to think about situations. Uh, but that's like a big, unique, and I think a great, um, a great asset for someone who's trying to find a job in this uh, you know, marketplace. There's so many options and so many companies out there. Uh, yeah. And so then you get the talent advocate. And then like the next step is basically going live on the platform, which is where you, you're visible from uh, by clients. Our employers. Okay, so I kind of want to touch on each of those steps. So the first one, the, the five to seven percent approval process. You mentioned that's a combination of algorithms and humans. How how does that process work? Are there like give me an idea of like how how somebody maybe gets flagged for being? Well, yeah, just just outline that process for me. Well, I think you can think if you think big picture, like realize you know it's a website. We're getting signups from all over the world. A really basic one is: Are you like? Do you have the right visa or the citizenship or the right like rules to work? Like, is it even possible? And so, you know, some things are possible. Some things aren't. Um, if you want to work in America, obviously, there's a lot of rules and laws that come into effect. So that's a basic sort of bar, basically, to jump over. Um, so there's a lot of that. And then once we find people who are sort of eligible to work and are in the right industry, so software engineers, like they're kind of close. Remember, it's the Internet. So we're like getting lots of sort of applications, as you can imagine. Um, then it's uh, also looked at, you know, generally by a human who will look at the profile and sort of make a judgment call and see what the market is. Um, and then we have some, you know, some algorithms and things that sort of make a guess at, uh, you know, do we think this person will be successful? Um, yes or no. But that's really an input that, you know, it's just another input just as a human's, um, you know, one of our curators' opinions. Mm. So when you have these curators that are looking over, so maybe like, you know, you go through an algorithm that, uh, you know, will throw out the ones that are just ineligible from the get-go, uh, and then, you know, it goes to a human curator. Do you log the, the kinds of feedback that the human curators are giving off by assessing a resume as a yes or a no, and then feed that back into the system? Um, of course. So every time this happens, we're essentially there's a system and it's being trained. Um, and so you can see as we learn more about what's successful, what's not successful on our platform with our clients and with our candidates, you know, we know who's going to, you know, it enables us to make a guess as to how to better, to better align the two sides of the marketplace in the future. And in terms of the talent advocate part, so so the person, you know, a resume makes it through the automated approval process. It makes a resume makes it through after the automated approval process, it makes it through that curation process. And then it gets into the hands of a talent advocate. Uh, do you are are the the functions of that talent advocate? Are those getting increasingly automated or augmented by by automation? Um. 
I think I think the answer here is really like yes or no. It's like most roles in any company. Um, we're growing, so as we're growing, there's more work and more things to do, and we're more capable of building tools that help ourselves. So the team I work on is actually, you know, spend a lot of time on internal tools, tools that help our business do better. So rarely am I working on something that's visible. I'd say to the average um, user I'm hired, um, but that's a great place where we're trying to invest in ourselves in order to you know, either scale up a little better in the future or scale up with a higher kind of, um, you know, not linear, be able to handle more people with the same workforce. So we definitely look at ways of making the job better. And I think the nirvana, like the ideal case is have people doing what they're really good at, which is relationships, understanding where someone's coming from. Like, do they want to move? Do they want to commute? Maybe they have something personal in their life that's sort of impacting the job move and what they want to do next. Maybe they think they want to get into mobile and do enterprise, but in reality, reality, they should go in another direction. And with a person, you can do that. And we're always looking for ways to free the time up for those people so that they can focus on delivering value to our, um, to our candidates, to our engineers, and uh, people that are looking for jobs on our platform. This is really interesting to me. What is the 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 common characteristic among the types of things that humans are really good at in this process uh, versus the types of things that a, a computer is really good at? It's a great question, and I think it always changes, right? I mean, I'm pretty sure we'll blink and cars will be driving themselves. Um, but really what I've noticed here is because... There's, a, there's just people involved, like having a conversation with someone is the best way to sort of tease out what they're really looking for in a job and how they're going to be the most satisfied. Um, a lot of information is in people's heads and they have to get it out. If everyone wrote everything perfectly and in the same way, computers would be able to sort of understand it at a really high level. Um, basically, you know, the difference there is, you know, if someone, I could take someone's brain and dump it into structured information you know, it's essentially what core is trying to do, right? Great. We know everything, but it's just not that way. And really, I think, especially with the job search, it's a lot of feeling and emotion. It's not just a pure, I go chase the most money or I go chase the biggest name. There's a lot that goes into it. Sounds like, um, it sounds like empathy is really important and that's probably hard to program. Absolutely. So, um, you know, recruiters, in my experience, often don't understand the nuances of what a software engineer is good at or what a software engineer is experienced at. How do you train the talent advocates at Hired to understand the subtleties of the different types of engineering work? There's a few things. A lot of them come from a recruiting background, so technical recruiting, so have some experience or have worked in a firm that kind of does work similar. So they're definitely aware of, you know, some of the terms and words that are in the industry, Rails and data and NoSQL and Docker and all these things. Um, But we're constantly training internally. I mean, we spend, um, those teams are big and run by really great people that have a lot of experience. And there's actually a ton of literature and books out there and ways to keep people up to date. Um, you just try to keep everyone in the loop. And, you know, a lot of this is works in concert with our clients who are looking for specific needs. And so kind of, um, you get exposed to basically all the technologies that are necessary to sort of create a technology company or a web page or an app today. So this idea of the human in the loop computing, there are companies like Stitch Fix 
who really emphasize this idea of human in the loop. They really say, you know, the automation can't do everything. So I'm really curious to get a, an idea of, of how much Hired thinks about this. Like, is this a big cultural aspect of Hired, like thinking about what aspects we should automate versus what aspects uh, we should, you know, enforce the, or give the, give to the computer? We definitely think about this a lot. I mean, we, um, you know, there's an announcement this week. We've bought a, a company that specializes in machine learning. Uh, we've built a, a data team, sort of done a lot of these things. So definitely very aware that leveraging the data we have to help us make better decisions is going to be really important. Um, and definitely, definitely think like that. But still, still, I wouldn't say like we're necessarily like Stitch Fix and sort of it's always going to be a person involved. But I think we think about how we can best use our workforce and so and have them deliver the most value. If that means getting a person to deal with every single individual, we'll do that. But, you know, we think of a lot of different models and different ways um, to get the right experts in front of the right people. Let's talk more about the engineering stack. Could you give me an overview of the front end and back end? Absolutely. We're a real site. Um, Pretty vanilla, Postgres, Ruby, latest version of everything, which is really, really exciting. We spent a lot of um, deep commitment to that. If you, ever, if you leverage open source technology, you want to stay up to date. It's the only way to do it. And then on the front end, actually, we were had experimented with Angular and have now actually moved over to experimenting with React. So some parts of our site are actually leveraging React. Um, and then we have our own custom CSS framework called Fortitude which is uh, we use on all public-facing sites. Do you, do you find that uh, given that it's a, um, you know, it's a more human-driven uh, process, at least right now, does that um, loosen up the engineering requirements? Does it make it such that uh, perhaps you don't have to think um, as intently about, about the, the engineering process? Well, I think, I think it's less about that point in general. It's more about what our site and like what are the properties of our application. So for instance, at Hired, you're logged in generally, right? It isn't a media site. It's not Twitter. It's not Imgur. It's not a shopping site where people are just coming and you're seeing what's, what's, you know, what's going on. So with that, we already don't have to worry too much about Black Friday, you know, at night, people coming home and wanting to watch videos or something like that. You know, I've been lucky enough to work in sort of e-commerce and like search. And in those industries, it's all about scale and staying up. Like the database mm-hmm. is melting. For us, we're actually pretty lucky. We're not um, we're not at the point where we're pushing the limits of the technology that are out there. There's plenty of companies that um, are operating a scale larger and we can easily scale. I mean, there's so much headroom with AWS and Heroku and all these services out there. So it's actually a fun place to like do great, like creative, interesting work. Um, it's, it's very rare that kind of dealing with the fear of, Oh man, the database is going to go down or like having these issues. So it's, it's actually, it's actually calm and sort of a little bit peaceful for now. I mean, I think traffic will of course go up, but uh, we don't have those issues of being a media site, for instance. Yeah, so like some of my first jobs out of school were uh, at a trading place, and then I worked at an ad tech place, and then I worked at Amazon, 
And at all of these places, your blood pressure is high and it's that's just built into the product. And I can totally see where you're coming from, where when you work at a company where perhaps, uh, you know, obviously you want to be up all the time, but it's not like if, if somebody, if somebody doesn't get their job offer for one extra day, it's not like they're never, ever going to use hired again. You totally violate customer trust. Um, so perhaps it's a little luxury, a little more luxurious, lets you think longer term. Um, but speaking of more engineering topics, what kinds of machine learning and data science workflows do you have set up at Hired? Not exactly my domain um, here, but we've actually built this team up over the last year, and it kind of went from really one person, one of our original founding engineers who always knew data would be fantastic and like a really great space to get into. We've now grown it over the last year into a team that must encompass like five, six, or even seven people. And so right now we're doing a lot of stream processing using Luigi, Kafka, and sending things, basically ending up in Redshift is our basically end the sort of destination data store. And then once we're there, leveraging all the sort of analytical tools that exist out there, I'd say we're, um, we're just in the process of really like building this and understanding how it's going to be really useful for us. And we've, you know, I've used Red, Redshift before and found, uh, you know, in e-commerce and found it to be very, uh, actually incredibly impressive. So pretty confident in using that here with the quantity of data that we're dealing with. What So Red Redshift is the Amazon platform as a service, uh, like data warehousing platform, yeah. right? Yeah, it's similar to Vertica. I think it's um, oh. basically a columnar data store. Uh, so it's very good for doing aggregations um, and looking at data that way. So if you want to pump a bunch of data in, it works uh, much better than having a, like a row-based database. Mm. Did you consider using like something open source like Cassandra or um, we just did a show about PhiloDB? Um, did you consider mm. these other solutions or were you just kind of like, well, we're already on AWS? Yeah, well, we're... We're really close to AWS, and we have experience. You know, that we've just hired people that seem to have experience with these tools, and so that's always a huge leg up, as you can imagine. Just a, you know, just navigating Amazon's choice of services is um, Byzantine and uh, you know, a challenge in itself. <laughs> and so, so that's I think we've just been really pragmatic, and I think that goes back to you know the requirements of our application. We don't really need to do anything super novel or special or reinvent the wheel, we can focus on solving the core problem that we're trying to solve, which is finding everyone a job that they love. So what are, I mean, this is one of the recurring discussions we have on Software Engineering Daily is like the choice of platform as a service versus uh, kind of, you know, maybe using infrastructure as a service and then putting, throwing some open source solution on top of that. Um it sounds like this wasn't really much of a debate for you. Is that accurate? No, I don't, in this no, in this company, I mean, there's always debate. People have opinions, but we're you know we run on Heroku, so we're pretty fairly managed and try to minimize the size of our you know DevOps or systems teams. We do have a lot of people because now we have more systems because we're doing more data, which is which kind of has to be a little more custom to our workflow, right? Versus just a a website that people log into and that's a very like common you know a simple real site is a very common thing but now we're kind of creating new technology and so we require the systems team but no there hasn't been too much debate i think no one is really interested in standing up servers or going down to the basement and screwing things in i know i'm not um <laughs> and so we tend to just leverage aws it's pretty it's been pretty good and then generally people come in with experience with it so it's not um in fact 
trying to use bare metal or some other service would probably be more difficult with the amount of sort of thinking and preparation we'd have to do. Uh, with AWS, it's ah, there's just so much knowledge out there, and then we're lucky that you know we're we're kind of good at the hiring thing, so the people we hire also tend to have experience that reflects that as well. With that in mind, like why um, or to what degree do you see uh, AWS as a desirable characteristic on uh, engineer resumes, where when companies are are looking for who to hire? AWS, AWS is nice. Um, there's other similar services, right? Like um, DigitalOcean and Rackspace, and now Docker is kind of even making it generic as to where your Docker container runs. Google Compute Cloud, I believe, is also very, very impressive because you have to leverage some of the nice, uh, you know, Google's technologies. Um, so it's important, but I think it's more about ability to scale. Um, a really important skill, and I think for a company growing, so you know, think take hired for instance. We're like 200 people now. I must have joined a year ago, and we were in the 80s, right? So the engineering team has grown, but also the business in general. And so I think that's really the experience I think people are looking for. And so generally, people who've used cloud distributed computing understand how to break down a problem into little pieces that can easily be scaled up and down. Um, and then also, if you've had that experience in a company, you've dealt with the taking one engineering team and breaking it up into many engineering teams and, you know, having managers and sort of going through that difficulty as well. And I think basically scaling both from a technology perspective and a people perspective is a really important skill as companies look towards the the future. So what's the hardest engineering problem associated with that scaling going on right now at Hired? Oof. I think our, our biggest challenge is it's less pure technology. I think we'll solve that. We know what's up and our, um, we're not breaking any records as far as bandwidth or throughput <laughs> or images going on. It's really about growing the team and people. So we've just expanded a lot. So we've hired engineering. I bet is now like in the tw- 30 people. It was 10. So now there's more people. There's more teams. We can't all sit around the same desk. We can't go out to lunch together. It's sort of the classic sort of growing pains, a company, you know, getting to the next level. And so now we're, you know, figuring out things like processes and how the different teams interact. Like, how do we split up work? You know, should, should, should it be front end and back end? Should it be things the candidate sees versus things the employer sees? Like, how do you split up the work and the domains in the company? And we're constantly experimenting with this, to be honest. Like, you know, we're kind of an agile company and our sprints every week are agile, but also the way we sort of look at big, situ- you know, the way we approach the big problems. I think we're also open to doing it in new ways, especially as we grow the team and the team just changes, requiring us to do things in a different way. So what kinds of conclusions have you come to? So that's that's so interesting, the idea of, you know, splitting splitting the org up of in terms of like what companies see versus what employ versus uh, candidates on the platform see versus the front end versus back end uh, splitting up. Like, what are the the pros and cons of those types of of engineering team divisions? Well, there's no perfect way to do this. Um, one challenge I find is, you know, there's those are two ways to sort of slice the same thing, right? So the skills that are required to be a full stack engineer thinking about one user's problem versus a different user's problem. Um, are very identical, but they're on separate teams. 
Um, and really, it's a debate between whether someone should focus on maybe is it really user focus? Like this is a user I'm going to focus on the whole stack to deliver the value that they need, or is it really functional? So now I'm going to be the database guy. Um, I think when you're smaller, we found it really valuable to really be focused on the user because you don't have the luxury of a big product team or designers or someone to go do a lot of research. It's really just you guys right there, small team trying to figure out, okay, we got some feedback that says they don't like this button or something. Like, should we change it? And you're able to make those decisions like sort of live. Um, so we kind of call that's like the kind of product engineering, uh, full stack engineer role. Um, but then at some point, uh, it be- either the system becomes too big or it's too complicated to all keep in your head, right? You just run out of head RAM, right? And you just need to like, you know, flush to disk. And with that is with that is basically, you know, getting someone who's knows about databases. And so now we're now we're seeing a little more specialization in the company where, hey, there's someone who really is awesome at front end and JavaScript, totally up to date on CSS and makes things really pretty pretty and pop, but you know, isn't going to be too helpful when um uh, say we're trying to upgrade the database version to the next one or, or deal with some sort of deployment issues. Um, so I see that where there's some specialization. Um, I think it's really related to size. I found when teams are small, there's more room for the generalist. And as teams grow, it tends to be like you need the role player and the, and the specialist to kind of come in and really do that one thing really well. So while you were talking, there was some sort of ding in the background followed by applause out of curiosity, oh. <laughs> was was that somebody getting a job? That someone got hired. Somebody got hired. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think. Oh, I'm not sure anymore, but I think there was a time that bell may ring a couple times an hour. <laughs> so, pretty good. Nice. So I want to talk some about product development because. Uh, earlier in your career, you were more focused on the engineering side of things, and you've kind of gradually shifted to higher-level product development. At least that's my impression. Assuming that's true, why did you make that transition? So I do have a very very sort of random career. was in engineering, consulting, and got into design. Um, at some point... It actually what happened as I became yeah more engineering, more technical. I think at some point I was just making a lot of PowerPoint slides. We called them like paper tigers, like these ideas and thoughts that go into some drawer. Like someone looks at it and says, this is pretty cool, like classic consulting sort of. You know, this is a classic feedback, the sort of negative, like, oh, we had all these great ideas, but we never really got to finish it. Um, and then just decided, let's get technical. I've always sort of had this aptitude of... Um, you know, messing with computers, making web pages, calculator games, you name it. And then, you know, really in that 08, 09, right, economy was changing a lot. It became much more important to not work for a consulting firm who's getting paid by the Fortune 50, right? Because they weren't really paying for things anymore. But start to build something and do your own thing. Um, and so I just started to, you know, kind of climb that hill and sort of pick up more and more responsibility inside of the work I was doing, being more technical. I'll deal with the database stuff. I'll get closer and then sort of climb that mountain myself. It was pretty good, but I was very lucky. That time was GitHub came out, Heroku came out. Um, Ruby on Rails was pretty popular and accessible. Python also like um, was very accessible. I think maybe Rails 2, Rails 3 came out, made things a lot easier, a lot of uh, examples out there. So it was a great time to learn, like it still is now. Like if you really want to learn a skill, there's really nothing stopping you. But particularly that time where there was something sort of 
interesting about it. Like, wow, this coding is social and I have friends on GitHub and we're solving problems together. It's sort of um, so taken for granted at this time. There are listeners who fit that kind of category where they're making some sort of career transition, even either they're they're moving from a technical or they're they're maybe they're in a technical role and they're dissatisfied with the technical role and they're looking to move to product development or design or they are more likely uh, a new new to the programming game you know there's a huge influx of people who are learning to code right now um, yeah. what are the steps that people should take to make a lateral career shift the number one, I think, is to find a way to be passionate about what you're going to start doing because you have to jump up the learning curve. And it requires effort. There's like, you just can't, I think there's no substitute for staying up late, diving into a problem, you know, torpedoing a whole weekend and just getting in there. So you have to really want it and really practice. And the only people I've seen become really successful are those people. Whether it was, I want to get into design and I start painting and drawing and I post it to Instagram. I just make this habit every day. And then, you know, two or three years later, um, you're working at Pinterest as a designer. Like I've totally seen this and I see it with the engineering team that we have, you know, we have people who've been to boot camps. We're doing some other job, you know, we're like teachers, math, and now we're engineers here. Um, but the number one thing is definitely passion and be really interested because it's going to be difficult. I don't think this is supposed to be easy. If it was easy, everyone would do it. If you don't have that, it's going to be really hard. Um, and then just try to leverage the resources that are out there. There's so much research you can do and so much practice It's and so many things to build. Um, I've recently gotten much more, you know, I think I was never into watching videos that much as, you know, I'd rather read the article. A video took a lot more time, but when you start poking around YouTube, there's some great tutorials where in an hour you can go from zero to react um, and have it explained to you in a pretty nice way. So the recommendation is like really want it because it's going to be hard. And Definitely. then all the resources are out there. Like you can totally do this. It's really practice. I really like, I think there's a Hacker News post where someone write like 100 days or 180 days of making a new web page every single day. Oh, I saw that. Right? Yeah. And I need that, to have that, that guy on the show. That was that was a fascinating post. Yeah, yeah. I think it's a woman, um, but oh. yeah, absolutely. Like that idea of my presumption. That's it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you have to. I, I could be wrong too. Um, but exactly, like you have to, you have to want it so much, and that requires a lot of diligence and sort of commitment. And you can see how that person is obviously going to have a leg up versus whoever wasn't doing that for you know for six months. So. You know, practice is good and then some sort of passion because what you're doing is you're trying to change to sort of find something that's better and going to make you happy. Um, you know, maybe you're chasing something more lucrative, but if you can find a way to really care and make it like what you want to do, it would be much, um, you'll have a chance and you'll totally do it. Yeah, I, I, I love that message, the persistence and practice message. I think it's absolutely correct. Um, I don't think there's really much in the way of like, um, having some genetic prohibition to this type of stuff for the, you know, for, for most of the population or, or being somebody who is not good at math or something, these types of, of excuses you hear from people who claim they're, uh, completely unable to code. It's just, they're not willing to put in the effort a lot of times. Um, but not to criticize. So, uh, the, the, the product development discussion, I find the hired product pretty interesting. Um, and 
there is a lot of variation in different age groups of our world and and how these age groups think about their employer. So for example, as a millennial like me, it is extremely unlikely for me to pledge allegiance to any company. Uh, you know, I think the, the tour of duty perspective uh, that I think Reid Hoffman has talked about is one that kind of resonates with me. For the most part, I'm going to be a mercenary at a company, unless a maybe a sizable equity package convinces me otherwise. But the people who are maybe 10 years older than me or 20 years older than me, they have varying degrees of loyalty towards their employer. They may have more loyalty. Um, and people younger than me may have even less loyalty. Like I know I, you know, the, the, I've just heard that the, the average, um, I think in like highly competitive companies in the Bay area now, like average engineer time is like four months or six months or something ridiculous. Uh, and wow. so, yeah, I, I don't know. I, that's totally anecdotal, um, yeah. but uh, but I, I kind of believe it. So, in, in, but in your experience, how do different age groups approach the hiring process, and how does that affect your approach to product development? It's a really interesting question. Um, it touches on a lot of things, right? Ethnographics and psychology, <laughs> and I think location. You know, I think we think a little bit about age group. We don't see it too much. I think it might be a factor where our clients are interested in technologies that are newer, and so that sort of skews the age group a little bit. Um, we think more like, I think, geography. So, for instance, Washington, D.C. on the East Coast has a big military presence, and you see a lot more Microsoft technology. Um, and people who have 20 years, 10 years experience and stuff like that um, are obviously really valuable, but are probably not going to be that as successful in the Bay Area, say in San Francisco. Um, Seattle, for instance, is another place like that. Um, so we do think about, I mean, I think about this in the way of like, let's try to keep the product flexible so we can handle all these different situations. But I think we're, we try to keep things simple when in doubt. We have really good product people and are always trying to like get a leg up. But to be honest, I don't think too much about the age thing. I don't think we're ever going to make a different product for millennials from people who are who are at a different um, stage in their career, we do notice more things like it's seniority. So someone who's who's at the beginning of their career is a very different profile than someone who's senior, like managed 100 people. Like they just don't come on our platform because um, they can get someone to just single-handedly manage their job search. And generally people like that are fairly lucrative to place. So typically see it like that. So we haven't touched too much on the on the age difference though I, I do think we may see something when we sort of move into things like internships and mm -hmm. new hires uh, you may want to think about that but to be fair it's not a problem we've thought about too much mm -hmm. mostly about geography you know uk and all these different countries are different and then even in america it's a big place where things are just different and like you know san francisco is a i think of it as a normal place but it's actually probably a little different than most places out there yeah, so this geographic stratification, this is super interesting, and this is increasingly important at Hired. You guys just raised a bunch of money. You're expanding mm -hmm. to markets in Asia. How, so, for example, Asia. Like, How does the labor market in Asia compare to that of San Francisco? Well, it's dramatically different. Everything's different. So Asia's a big place. I think it's worth breaking down. Um, we're kind of going to go after australia <laughs> yeah, I, guess thought, I, I did compare right? a continent to a city <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah it's true it's true um 
But obviously, you can see with Asia, I mean, sorry, with Australia, right? Like the language is common, so there's some things there that are like similar, right? People work jobs at companies and do that. So I think we're pretty confident about that. We bought a company there, and so they'll kind of think about it. But the really interesting challenge is um, when we think of Asia, what we're typically thinking of, you know, so Singapore, China, Japan. Um, very unique, very different. I haven't been lucky enough to go over there and do like firsthand research, but we definitely think about, you know, does a web product even work and how should pricing be different? And so I think, um, you know, these are all questions that we have as we move forward and try to go into different markets. I think it's, uh, it would be facetious for us to assume that what we've come up with in the markets that we've been into is, are, are going to work in all the markets that we expand into in the future. And it's about, you know, cracking that nut. But, you know, you can see even with companies like Facebook and Uber and these Google, right, these giant firms who have quite a lot of power and lobbying money and everything are also looking at countries like India and China and sort of perplexed and challenged and like how to get in there. Um, of course, we would love to expand and get in there, but I think we're, it's, uh, it's very different. Um, the biggest thing I think we see is, uh, the difference in use of like mobile phones and messaging and how business is really done. I think the U S is still email, um, web pages and some of that. And, but there are these places where your primary computer is your phone and, or it's just like culturally okay to be like WhatsApping your coworkers all the time. Um, do it here, but it's just different. It is different. In all these different places. Yeah. It is different. That whole mobile leapfrog thing where the, where the people in India, for example, just leapfrogged the, the desktop idea. And, you know, the, uh, you know, you'll have entire families where nobody's had a desktop in the family, uh, it's exactly. for, for gen- through like three generations. And that is difficult to, to overstate how much that impacts just the, the way that people interact with each other if they're using computers. And most of our interaction is through computers these days. Um, so I think that's that's fascinating, and, and we're going to see that increasingly propagate. Uh, you know, we're seeing it with the messaging stuff, um, the diff- ways different uh, countries and nationalities are using uh, messaging. So, you know, in terms of strategy, Uber has a strategy for expansion where they get a dedicated city manager for each new place that they set up in. And each city manager treats that managed city like its own startup. And so, you know, the, the city manager, uh, you know, of some gigantic city will, you know, have his own team or her own team. And obviously in Uber, the, uh, you know, the, the ROI of having an entire team dedicated to a city is, is, is probably definitively higher than hired right now, at least. But... Have you considered any any similar approaches to that? Absolutely. I mean, we don't. We tend to not operate in a market without having someone there, right? I mean, it's a very people business. I think we consider our relationships with the clients and candidates to be really one of the most important things. Um, we run a big referral program, right? Like the best way for us to get people is actually someone to like our product and recommend it to their friends, especially if they're an engineer or working in the industry. Um, so we definitely try to have people on the ground, you know, for instance, buying these companies in Australia and France gives us people who understand those areas and are already there and operating. And it really is an incredible leg up versus trying to operate out of some other city. Um, I think that's really important. We'll see. I don't, I mean, we'll see how that scales like infinitely. Um, 
you know, Uber may be a little different. Like there's nuances and the traffic and the city hall and laws in every city um, that may require a lot of, you know, hands-on attention. Um, for us, you know, we, we do put people all around the country. Like right now, I think we have maybe 13 or 14 offices and you can see that on the website. Um, and so definitely think it's important to have people in place, especially when you're trying to launch and start up uh, uh, in a new area. The most recent acquisition of uh, a company by Hired was a company called Zlemma, and Hired has done three acquisitions. I'm curious about the keys to making an acquisition and tech merger go smoothly. <laughs> it is not easy. You know, I've been involved in a few in my time, and um, sometimes successful, sometimes wildly not. <laughs> you know, as you can you can imagine. Um, C-sharp and SOAP and Ruby don't all mix together. Oh, <laughs> you can SQL Server and MySQL and all this stuff. My skin is crawling. Um, yeah. I think, I think for us, it's really number one is thinking about are the people on the same page, right? So if the, people, if the people get along, we understand each other, we can work together and have trust, then we can solve all the problems, right? Obviously, the, um, there's not just connectors out there and it all works, right? It's not like... You know, R2-D2 gets on an imperial ship and just plugs in, right? Like, it's not, it's not quite that simple. Um, but as long as the people can get along um, and see eye to eye and have that same mission, uh, I think it can all work. Um, but right now, we've been very opportunistic, I think, like looking to expand into new markets and being able to sort of partner or sort of acquire a company or really looking to get a leg up in a certain field of technology, which is sort of data science, machine learning, which is a Zlemma acquisition. Um, it just sort of worked out. But you know, it's people number one. That's, you know, when we're building our team, that's what we think about. Is this person a fit? Is this person going to, is this going to, is he going to be successful? He or she going to be successful here? Um, it's most important. Cannot be overstated. So talk more about that Zlemma acquisition discussion. Like why, uh, from your experience of things that have of acquisitions that have gone poorly and ones that have gone well, why did Zlemma seem like one that was going to go well, both from a technological standpoint and from a cultural standpoint? Well, they're in the same space, right? So they were looking at you know jobs and resumes and trying to understand how to really structure the data that's in this space. It was really what you know, is a lot of the technology and thinking and papers. And, um, you know, I think there's pending patents, but, you know, I'm not, I'm not up, completely up to speed on everything there. Um, so a lot of commonality there. There's a lot of common ground because we've both been thinking about the same sort of core problem, granted from different perspectives, but it's not trying to shoehorn, you know, technology being made for something else into like our application. It's really, really aligned. Um, and then people-wise, it's just, took time. So we have some really great founders, you know, they went, met with those guys and sort of spent a lot of time and um, tried to de-risk it as much as possible, sort of meet a lot, see the team, get a feel. Um, you know, these guys sort of came, uh, you know, they weren't already working in our office. Is that going to work? Zealand was a small company. We're a bigger company. There's a lot of things and like, who wants to come along? And so we were able to, you know, get their technology and get some people to sort of join, you know, come along for the ride who are interested in joining Hired. Um, and so it worked out there. Um, but keys really, it's the same space. And then, you know, just make sure that people are on the same page. I think ultimately the work we wanted to do is aligned. 
and together we're just more powerful. So, so far, so good. So uh, I want to begin to close off and get some macro ideas of what you've learned at Hired and what's going on there. Can you tell me something surprising or absurd that you've learned about the recruiting landscape from working at Hired? Yeah, I think there's a lot. I mean, we find that, I mean, here's a, just staring at the stat, I've been looking at all this paper, is is that 70% of people report feeling unengaged at work. (laughs) Like, okay, I didn't go gather the data, but, you know, that just seems sort of crazy. But, you know, you've been worked at places and you kind of talk to people and, you know, some people are really happy, but most people are just kind of there. You know, it's a job. You can't just change immediately. People have mortgages and kids and like all this stuff to deal with. But I found that really surprising. You know, I spend a lot of time trying to figure out where should I work and what should I do? And it is a really stressful process, but I was surprised to find that, wow, it was 70% of people. It's tragic, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's tough though. You know, it's also one of those things where you don't really know what a company's like until you actually get in. Um, it's very hard to predict the future. It's like with a lot of things, um, but just to see the, I guess our success rate be so low or something is kind of, is uh, unfortunate. It just means that there's a very large opportunity. Um, yeah. That's the, the most surprising thing I've seen. Mm. So when people have a bad experience with hired or they get matched with a job that is not a good fit, what are some typical reasons why this happens? Oh, why people are unengaged and don't? No, no, no. I'm, I'm talking just totally separate question. Totally separate question. Like what the times when hired doesn't work out? Like somebody goes on the platform, they go through the entire process, they get an offer, they get a job, they accept the job, yeah. they start working, and it doesn't work out for one reason or another. Why? What is the most common reason? Yeah. So often it's just some piece of information just wasn't relayed. Like something, something. There's a. No, we, we think a lot about this sort of analogy of dating, right? There's a little bit of like a courtship time where you're really nice to each other. And then when you're actually together, it's like the reality. So sometimes that doesn't work out. And what happens is, you know, some of our clients are very small companies making their first hire, second hire, third hire. And so when you have three people and you increase the size of your team by one third, you know, to four people, um, it's really the pressure cooker. It's not like adding one person to your hundred person team. And so often it's, you sort of think the culture thing is going to work out and then it just seems to be a little bit of distance, you know, either direction or the work that actually gets to get is, is you're able to do. So that happens sometimes, but um, I'd say that's the big one. You sort of see where someone actually goes and gets hired and then sort of doesn't seem to work out. Um, and I wish I knew like an across the board stat as far as like, you know, you give offers to 100% to people, what, you know, and then people say yes. And it's not even 100% of people that show up on their first day. You know, so already people just drop off. They just don't show up because they're going to some other job. But it'd be interesting to see, like, how long people actually stay across the industry. Because software also is in this place where there's so much demand. People are always thinking about the grass on the other side of the fence, which is a lot greener <laughs> and maybe has more money or something like that. But, um, uh, yeah, that could come into play, too. Yeah. Mm. I'm kind of curious about data. Like you guys have access to some really interesting data. I, you know, I wouldn't ask you to disclose anything that's like, uh, you know, you're keeping under wraps, but 
I am curious, you know, there's been so much discussion lately about, you know, women in tech, for example, and are their salaries normalizing? Um, what kinds of interesting properties of salaries do you see? Do you see any discrimination? Yeah, and so I think I think we have a blog post that's been out in like the last maybe four months or something like that that goes into um, the gender gap in salaries. And what we found on our platform was simply that men tended to make more across the board. But it was, I think it was really the reason was because men tend to ask for more than women. So, so a lot of the encouragement we've been doing is like, okay, well, TA is like, you should encourage this person to sort of maybe put, maybe put their like expected salary a little bit higher to sort of create that parity. I mean, that's one takeaway. There's a whole, I mean, we did a, quite a few articles and stuff like on this topic, but it is, it is interesting. It's definitely a topic that we think about a lot. We're definitely putting a lot of emphasis and focus into sort of diversity and inclusion this year, even to the point where there's a new feature, actually the hackathon result, a new feature on the site where you can hide the names and pictures of people on the platform. So you can actually look at profiles without being influenced by uh, this person's name or what they look like. And I think we'll see, but I think coming down the pipeline might be like uh, hiding schools. Um, So you can just look at things like skills and maybe what they wrote about themselves. Um, Mm. Interesting idea. We'll see how that goes, but it's been received very, very well. Um, And so we definitely, I think it's a good opportunity to do that too with, with sort of hired in this platform where it's, you know, how can we get that like really smart person who's a great engineer but happens to live in Indiana, right? How do we surface them up to the top and sort of get them a shot at working at, I don't know, Lyft or Uber or one of these things because um, they can do it too, right? Like you kind of sit in front of a computer. It really doesn't matter where you are, mm. you know? You could be in New Zealand right now, as could I, and sort of just, we'd have this exact same experience. Hired uses its own product to hire people. Uh, what has what has been the experience, or what have been the learnings of dog fooding that? And um, actually, wait, weren't you you were hired through Hired? Is that accurate? I was. Okay, yeah. tell me about that. So I I've, I've actually been on the Hired platform a few times, um, and it's the last time that they got me. Um, just saw the website. I live in San Francisco, sort of in the industry. Um, got an email. You know, we do a lot of advertising. So, and signed up for the platform and went through one job search. Didn't actually end up getting a job through Hired. Got some interviews. Um, and then was just looking for another job search. And this time it connected with Hired. And so, you know, you get the interview and go in and see. And it just seemed to all make sense. You know, the stack was very compatible with the work I've done before. And then the, the size of company was really perfect. I'm really interested in this sort of 50 to 500, the uh, uh, adolescence or old age. Who knows whatever way you look at it. But, you know, that kind of company, because I've typically either been in much larger or much smaller. It's best to be at the unicorn before it grows its horn fully. Um, let's, let's hope, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um. Cool. Well, uh, you know, I guess I'll close off with uh, one more question. Is is the process of hiring improving across the industry? I don't know. I think there's there's conflicting data points here. There's a lot of things that are saying it's taking longer and longer to hire. Sort of a paradox of choice. There's so many options. People want to interview more. 
um, you know, putting a lot of significance into some hires. Um, at the same time, like we're proud that, you know, if you use hired, it's something like 19 days is sort of the average time to get someone hired, which is kind of low. So there isn't a definitive answer here, but I would say overall, yes. I think there's more access to people. There's more access for everyone to sort of show what they're about. And I think particularly in technology, when we sort of share information, there's a lot more tools to sort of get an idea. Is someone actually going to be productive for your company? So part of that is, you know, I can run a code interview through some app, right? I can interview someone on Skype, like live, but also we're sort of thinking about problems differently. You know, some companies say, come in and work for us for a week and we'll see if this actually works as the interview. So we're willing to sort of look at the typical, you come in, you do a phone screen, you come in, you come in again, you spend all day, you answer your brain teasers, you know, the classic sort of big company interview. But people are thinking outside the box and trying some different approaches. And I think in today's world of sort of the sort of Uber driver, like part-time work, pickup gigs, you know, it's a little bit of like, you know, contract to hire, start working a little bit, try to de-risk it on both sides. So I think both sides are now trying more and more harder to make their team ideal, especially as you're able to now accomplish so much with a smaller team. It makes each person more and more valuable or more and more significant, right? Important to think about if they fit in. Okay, well, that sounds like a great place to stop. Heaton, thanks for coming on to Software Engineering Daily. I appreciate talking to you and a big fan of Hired. And I guess thanks to Hired for being a continued sponsor of the show. Hopefully listeners don't feel there's too much conflict of interest in uh, doing an interview like this. (laughs) Yeah, thanks, Jeff. This is great. Okay, cool. 